Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Chris Stern, CEO and co-founder at Carbocrete, a Montreal-based carbon removal technology company that's developing innovative, low-cost building solutions that contribute to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. The company has a patented technology first developed at McGill that enables the production of cement-free, carbon-negative concrete. I was excited for this one because cement and concrete are surprisingly large sources of emissions, and they're also really hard to decarbonize. Carbocrete has a different kind of approach that uses an industrial byproduct, the slag from steel factories, to replace cement as a binding ingredient in precast concrete products. I love the out-of-the-box thinking here, and it's fascinating to learn more about Carbocrete's story, how they came up with the idea, how they went about taking it to market, when they did, the twists and turns and phases that they've been through to date, the progress that they've made, what's coming next, their long vision. We also just have a great discussion about how to bring these hard tech companies in general to market and the role that they can play in accelerating the clean energy transition. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me on the show, Jason. Uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. I mean, decarbonizing cement and concrete, I've I've looked at it some. People like Rob Niven and Josephine Chung from GCP Applied Technologies, but it seems like Carbocrete's got a, a different approach and definitely an area where, where we still have room to learn and, and other stones to, to turn over. So thanks for making the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. So jumping right into it, what is Carbocrete? Carbocrete is a technology that replaces cement in concrete. And how do we do that? Well, we actually use an industrial waste byproduct of the steelmaking industry called steel slag. And steel slag, there's like 250 million tons of it made 
every year as a direct result of making steel. And it's generally landfilled or used as road base, so it doesn't have a high value. And in some cases, there's a, a cost to get rid of it. And it's basically ground down to the specification that we advise, and it's used in place of cement in masonry products like concrete blocks and paving stones and retaining walls. And the one way it differs in cement is that it does not hydrate. So, you know, it does not cure by hydration. It actually cures by subjecting it to CO2. So the calcium oxide and silicates that are that make up this hard mineral actually react with CO2 and it consumes CO2 in great quantities, actually. Uh-huh. And what's the origin story for the company? How and when and why did it come about? That's a great question. This is my second startup. My first startup was in solar power, residential solar power, a company called Pure Energies. And we started that company in 2010, four of us, and we grew it from four people to 200 in about four years. And we ended up selling the company to NRG Energy in 2014. So after a year of looking after children and other things like that, I decided that maybe I should do something else. And my dad told me to go back to work, in fact. So he actually introduced me to the tech transfer people at McGill. And that's where I met the professor as well as his graduate student, Mirdad Mahoudian, who invented this process. And that's also where I learned in 2015 how bad cement actually is. I mean, to me, up until that point, I just thought it was an innocuous powder that people put together with aggregate and water and make concrete. But in fact, it's actually responsible for 8 to 10% of greenhouse gas emissions, so like two gigatons a year. And it's very difficult to decarbonize. I mean, you can choose different fuels to make cement, but the general process is driving the CO2 off the calcium carbonate. And just that process alone releases a lot of CO2. So that's why we got into it. And given that your first company was in solar and and this company is now in concrete and both of those have a climate bent to them, is that an accident? Is that intentional? How did that all come about that you are a multiple time climate tech founder? Actually, what it comes down to is that I, you know, I started my career off in selling packaging equipment, which is actually making garbage, right? Then from there, I moved into the automotive industry, which is another industry that's very, I would say, you know, dirty and after a couple of these jobs and positions, I realized that I should go back to my roots, which, you know, I, I'd like, as a child, I used to pick up litter and throw it in the garbage and, and things like that. So I, I have this, I've always had this desire to have a clean world, clean surroundings. So, you know, I started working at a company that was in the CD and DVD manufacturing industry, and they wanted to get into new industries. So I identified the solar power industry as something that I want to be involved with because a CD is about the same size as a solar cell. So they sold materials into the CD and DVD industry, and I identified solar industry that uses a lot of the same processes to make solar cells as CDs and DVDs. That it was a good good place to go to. So that's how it all started, and that was in 2005. And as you started thinking about what was next, had you ever taken a technology out of the lab before, dealt with the tech transfer people and things like that, or was this the first time? It's the first time. Yeah, it was the first time. It's been an interesting journey because basically you're taking it from academics and building a business around it because academics don't think of what the business should look like when they're actually inventing something. They just know that it's good. If you make something that's carbon negative, I mean, back in 2012 when Mirdad was starting it, it was you know obviously very important. But today, it's on the tip of everybody's tongue. Uh, you know, like getting rid of the CO2 emissions from cement is extremely important and difficult. It's very difficult. 
And so what, what form was the tech or what form was the project or what form was the company in when you first started the discussions? Basically, it was Mirdad was uh, wrapping up his PhD. So it was basically a science project. He had invented this thing. McGill had applied for the patent. And I said, well, you know, maybe I should take this patent and we'll build a company around it. So it was really literally right from the lab. Uh-huh. And with the benefit of, of hindsight, so let's say there's other entrepreneurs listening who might not have taken technology out of the lab before, but are very climate motivated and maybe having similar discussions like you were having with tech transfer offices and things like that. What advice do you have? Or I guess, same question in terms of how you went about specifically determining or you know evaluating this opportunity or evaluating in the context of other tech that you might take out of the lab? Well, I mean, like... For sure, I'll say the same thing as I said back then. It sounds too good to be true because literally we are replacing cement. We're using industrial waste byproduct and we're sequestering CO2 forever. It'll never come out of that block. I said, why is it somebody commercializing this right now? Because it made no sense. Like this is the best idea. This is seriously the best idea. And that's, I still believe it. So, you know, if it sounds good and if when you tell people and the reaction is always, well, that sounds like a great idea. Well, it probably is. You know, and people still, I tell the story every time they say, that sounds like the best idea ever. You know, like, why aren't you everywhere? You know, and it's because, you know, we're growing the company and, you know, we're commercializing the, the process right now. And so when you started engaging, when was that? And then what are the key steps or phases or, you know, what have you guys gotten done between then and now? Yeah, interesting. So, so basically, I started talking to them in 2015, and it was about a year of you know just a meeting every month or so, just to try and understand what these guys were up to. And then eventually, you know, the X Prize, the Carbon X Prize, was started, and we said, well, let's just hop into this. And so we did, and then you know we made it to the finals, and subsequently didn't proceed because we had to build a plant in Alberta where there's no steel slag. So we we basically said, well, why don't we just raise funds and build something in Quebec where we're all residing, and where there's tons of steel slag. So that's you know that's where it started off based on the, the X Prize, but then that quickly morphed into let's build a business plan, let's raise capital, you know, and let's get this thing you know to the size and scope that it needs to be. And when you looked at the concrete market at that time, what was it about it that made it so hard to decarbonize? And, and relatedly, what are some of the leading approaches other than the, the one that you're pursuing with, with Carbocrete that are attempting to address this issue? Yeah, so it's very difficult to decarbonize cement making because the chemical reaction produces CO2. So that's very difficult to, to stop. So if you are going to make cement, then the only way to decarbonize it is to capture the CO2 and do something with the CO2. So there are companies doing that, like Svante in Canada has got a process to do that, to capture emissions from cement plants. You know, Or you can do other things like um, carbon cure, which are you know, putting CO2 into cement trucks, concrete trucks which lowers the amount of cement that's required in the concrete. And thereby, because of doing that, it, it lowers the amount of CO2 that's produced. But there's not a lot of people looking at this industry because it's so difficult. It's not like if you go back to the electric grid, like solar power has been around since the 50s, right? When Bell Labs started to make solar cells. And, you know, it's the cost curve was driven down from like $100 a watt to installed costs 
you know, for residential solar now is like two bucks a watt, like, and it's installed. Like, you know, back then it was a hundred bucks a watt for a solar panel. <laughs> the cost curve had to be driven down. And that's, that's what we're doing at this point as well, driving down the levelized cost of carbon capture. And talk a bit about the Carbocrete approach and what makes it different and unique. Well, the approach is instead of like hit our heads against the wall and trying to decarbonize cement, we're using a product that's already existing. Steel slag is, it's made every year. Like it's part of the process. And to make good steel, you're going to produce a bunch of minerals. And the minerals are, unfortunately until now, didn't have a big purpose in life. You know, they they end up in landfill or like, as I mentioned, they could be used as road base. So like aggregate, you know, like $5 a ton, basically. So like not a huge value. So it's a, an existing thing that we took and say, well, let's just react this with CO2. And that's the uniqueness of it, right? We're taking essentially garbage, you know, and reacting with CO2 and making a valuable product, concrete blocks, bricks, paving stones, and retaining walls, things you can explain to your grandmother. It's not some sort of a, an interesting concept, like nobody understands what you're doing, but it accomplishes something like, you know, direct air capture and putting the CO2 into the ground where it mineralizes it, you know, under the ground. Like, why do people do that when you could actually stick it into concrete blocks and build houses with it, build walls with it, use it for paving stones and things like that? And was this an accidental discovery or when it was in the lab? I mean, how... How did the team come upon the fact that this could be an option? Well, so I'm really speaking on Mirdad's behalf, but the inventor, but what happened was he started his PhD looking for a cement replacement. And he tested many different things and then discovered that steel slag is, is the best option. And he tried and he tried and he couldn't get to work. And so there was something, you know, he had to take in the lab grinder in for servicing and he took it in for servicing, and when he got it back, it actually worked. The reason why it hadn't worked thus far was because the grinder was busted the whole time. So he literally discovered the grinding or the, the actual morphology of, of the slag after he got it back. So it was kind of by accident. And what is steel slag? It's a very hard mineral. So like calcium, it's made of calcium oxide and silicates and silicate phases. So it, it's something that can react with carbon dioxide. So it's a very hard mineral. Has anyone tried to make concrete without using cement before? I'm sure there are different people or companies that have tried making different types of concretes. There are different types of concretes, but they're always normally very expensive. The unique thing of ours is that we're using a waste byproduct and waste streams. So they're effectively, they're lower in cost in materials than regular concrete. What's hard about it or said another way, what's defensible? I'm not sure I understand. So let's presume that you have some success and other people say, oh, that is too, not only is that not too good to be true, like it's viable and everyone should do this. Like what stops other people from, from doing it and having it just be kind of a race to the bottom on cost over time? Yeah, that's, well, I mean, obviously we've built a interesting IP portfolio as well as there's a lot of secret sauce in there to actually make it happen at the reaction rate that you want, at the CO2 uptake that you want and the strengths that you want. There's a lot of, you can call it the secret sauce that's been developed. The second thing and the more important thing is the supply of steel slag. I mean, any IP is great, but if you don't have any materials to make the product, then it's going to be very difficult to operate. So we chose our first investor, the world's largest slag 
handling company, which is a company called Harsco, which is headquartered in Pennsylvania. And they, they're operating on 140 steel sites all over the world. And quite frankly, we get phone calls from steel companies all the time now. You know, they're like, well, how do we get your technology integrated? So we've got projects on several different continents, testing product and, and seeing, discussing pilot projects. And on the supply side, what's the pitch to those steel slag manufacturers or the ones that, that have this waste byproduct? Why should they work with Carbocrete? Yeah, generally they're pitching us, but they've got a waste byproduct. So, but basically we're making a non-valuable waste stream of theirs valuable. So that, that's the pitch. So they're pitching saying, I have this waste and I can get incremental revenue if I work with you. So can I work with you? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. It's worth more than using it as aggregate, put it that way. Uh-huh. And then what about on the other side, who's the customer? And is that customer someone that Carbocrete has a direct relationship with or, or is it more of a channel? Yeah. So we don't build masonry plants because they already exist. So there's no reason for us to raise capital to build a whole bunch of concrete plants. So we license the technology and get a, a revenue stream there. And of course, a revenue stream from the carbon dioxide that we either abate or fully remove. Got it. And what types of entities do you license the technology to? Like masonry producers, you know, so some examples could be CRH, um, you know, Old Castle, which, you know, has 200 masonry plants in North America alone. So they would be a target customer, for example. Uh-huh. And then what, what phase is the company and how far along are you and what does the company or the business look like today? So from its start, it was just myself and Mirdad and quickly added Yuri Mitko and Mario Venditti. And from there, we've grown the team to 22 people now. And we've got a 10,000 square foot facility in the Montreal area where we're doing R&D, we're reviewing steel slags, we're inventing new products. So we've got a concrete lab that makes samples doing that. And then we've got an industrial lab attached to it where we can make full-size products. Then, of course, our headquarters is, is there. Separately of that, we're running a pilot at a masonry plant about an hour from Montreal called Patio Drummond, where we're making concrete blocks today. And after that, we are basically building our supply chain around a steel plant not far from Patio Drummond. And we've added a number of other customers that will be effectively installing our technology over the next year. And how have you navigated the capital raising process? How has the company been funded to date? And, and how much of that has been equity capital versus non-dilutive or other types of debt or, or other types of funding? Yeah, that's another great question, considering this is my second go around. So it's important to keep as much equity in, inside the company as you can. So we've raised a bit of equity, but mostly have been grants. Uh, so roughly half the cash that we've raised which is, it's an eight digits, is is basically from grants. And there's another, I guess, one quarter of that, which is in debt, and then, you know, a quarter of equity. So we've been pretty stingy on the equity, you know, so we have gas in the tank for the next raise. Uh-huh. And don't, don't answer this if you don't want to go there, but from the grant standpoint, what types of sources are there for those grants? And then, I guess, a build on that would just be what advice you have for other climate-focused founders trying to figure out both how to access and how to determine the best fit of non-dilutive financing. Yeah. So the, the first thing to advise is start your company in Canada because there's all kinds of programs here. So we have a grant from the SDTC, which is Sustainable Development Technology Canada. And so they've been at this for 
a dozen or more years supporting companies like ours. And a sister to that grant program is Technoclimat, which is in Quebec, the province. And they basically, it's the same paperwork, except we have to submit it in French instead of English, but that's about the, it's the exact same paperwork. So we got a grant from that, that program. So it, it doesn't stop there. There's new programs that have just come out. The Strategic Innovation Fund in Canada is supporting companies like ours scale up. So there's all kinds of support in this country. Uh-huh. And what are the downsides to non-dilutive financing or specifically the path that, that you've chosen? Are there restrictions at all or limits in flexibility or reporting requirements or or is it really just like free money? I mean, there are some restrictions. You know, it's not terrible or anything, but there's some restrictions. You can't just take the money and go spend it on whatever you want. And there's definitely a lot of reporting. So there is some reporting, but you can actually claim that as one of your allowable expenses. So it's not like you're taking it out of your own pocket to pay for those uh, services. And what about the debt? You mentioned there's some debt in the company. What's been the source of that? And from your seed, is access to that type of capital plentiful or are there gaps when it relates to things like first of a kind or other steps along the way to bring a new technology to market? Well, I mean... We have venture debt because we have equipment that we had to buy. So we leveraged that equipment with venture debt. And it's a little bit higher risk than normal because, you know, as you said, it's a first company, right? So first of a kind. So it's not single digits. It's, you know, it's in double digits. So there's there's that type of debt. And then there's a couple of government entities where we have actually no interest and a holiday for two years. You know, like literally we have, yeah, like I said, if you're going to start a company, do it in Canada because there's a lot of support for companies like this. Uh-huh. And then when you look forward in this next phase, what are the key priorities for the company? And to the extent that you'll be looking for outside capital, what profile of, of capital do you think is the best fit for this next phase? So what's the next phase? And then what profile of capital do you think is, is right size for that? The next phase is basically getting grinding system installed at the steel plant and and basically tooling up to be able to sell all the steel slide that can be put through that grinder from that steel plant. So finding enough customers around us, and there's plenty, you know, that can use the technology. And so we're effectively raising capital to, we'll do that to raise this first cluster of customers. We call it a cluster of customers because they're clustered around a steel plant, not next to them, but like, you know, within you know, a certain amount of kilometers. The next phase of the company is to build out that cluster. And is that an equity raise, do you think? Once again, we're talking to various levels of government for assistance on behalf of our customers, and there's going to be equity that we're also going to raise. So depending on who owns what, we might also raise some debt once uh, projects are sort of ossified. And in some of these harder to decarbonize sectors like cement and concrete, I mean, do you think that traditional technology venture capital is a good fit for this type of company and, and this type of industry or or should it be avoided? I've had that discussion with myself, you know, for the last number of years because, you know, venture funding, it's a venture play because of the carbon aspect of this. So if you can like, yes, we're making nice concrete and yes, it's beautiful, but really what we're doing is creating storage systems for CO2. That's what we're doing. And once you see it like that, then you know, you basically, the venture play is that you've got a way to capture carbon and store it forever, right? So, you know, there's a lot of direct air capture companies and other capture companies that, you know, raising this capital or that capital, getting paid this amount of money to take CO2 out of the air. But the fact remains, once you've taken it out of the air, what are you going to do with it? 
you know, you got to do something with it. So you can stick it in the ground and it's, that's fine and get paid to stick it in the ground. Or you can partner with a company like Carbocrete and we'll put it into a valuable building product that can be sold just like regular concrete. So in that model, so it, it sounds like there's a role for offsets, carbon credits. Do you see the direct air capture company leading those projects or is it Carbocrete that's leading those projects? And given that you're the storage and in that in that example, the direct air capture company is the one that's actually pulling the carbon out of the air. What might the the business model be and, and who does what? Yeah, that's a good question. We're working through that right now because it's new, right? This is totally new. But the fact remains that we're making a valuable building product with CO2. And there's a revenue stream available to direct air capture and where to put it afterwards. So it needs to be split amongst the two entities. Uh-huh. And so do you envision then in that scenario that the big companies, for example, that are making these big net zero commitments and need to offset a portion of their emissions as they're working through some of the harder to decarbonize aspects of their businesses and footprints and supply chains, et cetera, would they actually be customers of yours or customers of the direct air capture company? Or I guess I'm kind of asking the same question I just did. So the answer might just be, we don't know yet, but. No, no, we're talking to a lot of them right now. So it's, and I think it's new for them too, right? The big thing they have a hard time understanding is that, oh, you don't just capture it and stick it in the ground. You actually do something with it. So the cost of capture and the cost of utilization, you know, is lower, you know, at a reasonable run rate when you're making something that you can sell. So they actually love, love the project. Uh-huh. And I guess a, a kind of a follow-up to that, now that I'm kind of thinking through what you've told me already, is I guess there's a question in my mind about whether it would be you or whether it be the manufacturer, you know, the producer of the concrete that you license the, the technology to that would be facilitating those credits, right? Yeah, we're going to facilitate it because we're going to have all kinds of customers and it could be just one plant that's basically using our tech and the cost of them to monetize them is going to be far higher than what, what it will cost us considering we're going to have a portfolio of storage systems or storage you know, hosts basically. So you know, effectively it's in the licensing paperwork. Uh-huh. And so I guess I'll, I'll ask you on each side of the, of the business here on the on the side where you're providing an alternative to emissions-heavy concrete, what does the cost look like of using a carbocrete product versus the incumbent products? So the materials cost is lower than regular concrete. So it's you know the levelized cost of concrete manufacturing is effectively lower than making regular masonry. So, but to get from here to that point, you know, obviously we've got to tool up a few few customers and that's going to cost somebody something. So there's going to be a, a bit of, let's say, help from our side until it becomes you know, a regular thing. Uh-huh. And when you say tool up, so, so how much does need to be revamped in terms of the way that these customers do things in order for them to be able to incorporate Carbocrete technology? Yeah. And that's the basis of why we decided to not raise you know, lots of capital and build masonry plants because the masonry plant, a carbocrete masonry plant versus a regular masonry plant is very similar except for the curing system. So it's just the curing system that has to change. In a greenfield development, it's the same price, right? It's because if you're 
you're buying a curing system, you're buying a curing system. But for a brownfield, an existing customer, they've got to swap out their curing system. So it's not a, intensely expensive, but there there is a cost. Mm-hmm. And then on the offsets or the credit side, does there need to be a price on carbon for this model to work? Does it need to be at a certain threshold? Do you know what that number is? Does it work today? Like kind of where are we and where do we need to be? We designed the business to not rely on carbon credits. So the economics work such that you don't need the carbon credits, but the carbon credits are a bonus. So whatever the, the market, the prevailing prices are, we're going to take. Mm-hmm. And is this a business that could either benefit from or be at risk by policy? And, and if so, in what way? I think we would benefit from some policies. So there's there are some in, in the states that have come up, like LECLA in New York, and now the bill's on the table in New Jersey, that, that'll benefit a company like ours. I see that, and there's going to be more and more of that. You know, in Canada, we've got carbon pricing already, which is federally mandated to go up to 170 bucks a ton by 2030, which is awesome. You know, it's a no-brainer for people to switch over to our technology in this country because they're going to be paying extra for their cement right? Because there's a lot of CO2 associated with that. And then, you know, they won't get the benefits of sequestering CO2. So it's a double hit to their bottom line. Uh huh. And when you put your head down on the pillow to go to sleep at night these days, as it relates to the business, what's the biggest thing or the biggest things that are keeping up at night? Well, it's, it all comes down to getting customers converted and getting them up and running. So that the actual physical, like the getting down to it, part of it, right? So that part we're working through at this point. And that's what this first cluster is all about that we're going to be building out over the next year. It's getting that process down that we can rinse and repeat afterwards. Uh-huh. And if, if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing that's outside of the scope of your or Carbocrete's control that would most benefit your business and ultimately the decarbonization of concrete, what would it be and how would you change it? Yeah, there should be a universal carbon tax. And that's not just for us. I mean, just in general, the, like the, the only way to, to get us out of this climate mess is to have a universal cooperation on what should be the price of carbon and which authority will account for it. So that's the one missing piece. And it's not just me hoping for that. It's like, I would think a lot of people are hoping for that, you know, because it's right now we rely too heavily on carbon emitting industries. And the only way to get out of this is through carbon tax, because, you know, if it's a fair playing field, then as a group of people, we're going to figure it out. Uh huh. And what about just the, the willingness of, of the industry to change? It seems like an industry that's done the things the same way for a long time. So, I mean, is there a risk that even though the value proposition unemotionally is better that the creatures of habit will just resist for, you know, for no good reason other than inertia? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another thing. I mean, look, look, it's an industry that's been around for 2,500 years. So it takes some time to, to get people, you know, across to that. But to all the people I've spoken to, they're gung ho about it. Their customers are asking for it. Architects are asking for it. EPCs are asking for lower carbon concrete. You know, there's bonus points, like I said, in New York and New Jersey, as I was saying. So it's it's, it's going to be, there's going to be a customer pull, you know, on, on the precast side. So the uptake will, will be largely dependent on, on those things. But as you said, you know, like it's, we still have to educate people, you know, as to why they should be doing it. 
Uh-huh. And other than the price on carbon that you mentioned, I mean, are there technology gaps or things that you wish that others would solve that would help accelerate the path for Carbocrete? Yeah. So, I mean, a modular direct air capture system. I'm not asking somebody to capture a million tons of CO2 per year because, you know, each site of ours needs, you know, five to 10,000 tons per year, right? So a modular direct air capture system that we can bolt onto ours, like a carbocrete plant, would be very well received. Nice. And have you seen anyone working on such or have you heard about it? Yeah. I mean, look, there's a new direct air capture company every day, literally. I mean, there's lots of different ideas out there, but, you know, Direct air capture has got a ways to go because you're trying to beat the second law of thermodynamics, and usually that law wins. So, in fact, it always does. So the question is, is how do you get the cost down and the energy consumption, or where does the energy come from, to the point where it makes sense? So other than the work that you're doing in the concrete industry or concrete in general, if you take a step back and just look at the broader climate problem, what are some of the levers that you think could be most impactful, not just for concrete, but just in general to speed up the transition to a decarbonized world? Yeah, the focus should also be placed on, you know, let's look at all the industries and and knock them off one by one, right? So transportation, you know, we've got electric vehicles, but that's not going to completely do it. I think we're going to need hydrogen and a hydrogen supply system as well and, you know, a whole network. That needs to be developed. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh-huh. And bouncing around a bit, but back to Carbocrete, you mentioned how the companies that you sell to, that their customers are, are asking for it. From a marketing or a sales standpoint, I mean, do you spend any time evangelizing to indirect stakeholders that are maybe one or two degrees removed, but that can influence things further up the chain? Absolutely. We talk to EPCs and architects all the time. And they're the ones like, this is the greatest thing. We need to get this. How do we get this? That, that's kind of like the first words out of their mouth. Is that because it's saving the world or is it like, what is it that's resonating about what you're doing to, to them? They're trying to decarbonize their buildings. I mean, and, you know, if it's, let's say, for example, they're trying to get lead points. I mean, not everybody's looking for lead points, but this this adds a lot of points, right? If you use this type of concrete. But beyond that, people are just looking to decarbonize the building industry. What's driving them to do that? Is it saving the world or is it mandates or like, why do they care? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is saving the world, but it's also, you know, it comes down to the carbon pricing is is on the horizon. It's already here in Canada and it's going to come to the States as well. And, you know, it's already in Europe and it's it's just a fact. It's just a fact. If, if And if you don't figure it out now, you're going to be behind the eight ball effectively, right? So the next guy over is going to figure it out. So nobody wants to be the musical chairs, you know, the last one to sit down. And for anyone listening that's inspired by what you're doing and the importance of the mission, where do you need help? What kinds of people do you want to hear from? Chemists, engineers, that's the kind of people that we're we're looking to speak to, you know, as we grow the company and look to deploy more and more projects. People on the carbon financing front, you know, you asked me about venture funding, like the venture firms that have a focus on carbon or climate and knowledge of where CO2 should go and where the market should go, those are the people we want to talk to because this is the next big thing, really. Getting rid of CO2 out of the atmosphere is going to be what we're all thinking about for the next 20 or 30 years. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Look, 
Carbocrete does three things. We get rid of an industrial waste byproduct, steel slag, it ends up in land landfills. We replace cement. You can't decarbonize cement easily. And we get rid of CO2. We put it into blocks and it never, ever comes out. Only if we burn it and nobody burns concrete blocks. So that's the message I want everybody to understand. There's no reason why not to choose Carbocrete. Okay. Well, Chris, this was awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you and the Carbocrete team. Thank you very much, Jason. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.